that this is a Labor Day weekend and we would talk about uh, rest. And uh, it's going to be a little longer than this lesson because uh, entering into rest is the topic of chapter 3 as well as chapter 4. But it is very important for us as we approach uh, these two chapters to understand the backdrop to them coming not only from Psalm 95, but from the historical text in the Pentateuch that are the basis for uh, Psalm 95. I remember a few years ago, I had a phone conversation with Marvin Ball, and I think he was in Oregon at the time. And uh, we, were, we had this great theological conversation going on, as Marvin and I sometimes do. And, and all of a sudden, I had the feeling that the conversation had changed somehow, and I, couldn't, I just couldn't wrap my arms around what it was. But I wasn't getting the same response and, and, and so on. And the, the party on the other end seemed to have that same feeling. And we discovered that somehow our phone lines had been switched. And all of a sudden, I'm talking to somebody else in Marvin's office. I don't know who he was talking to. But I, but I realized that without that background of common information, there's not much of a conversation that can go on. And without the background of what we see in the Pentateuch and then in Psalm 95, we'll have no idea what the author is trying to do for us in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. So this is a very, very important thing uh, to do. Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 2 talk about the supremacy of the Son. He is superior to the angels. He is superior in all these ways that are described in those first, uh, in those verses, uh, in, in, in chapter 1. And then we see in chapter 2 that he who holds this great place of power and preeminence, uh, stoops to become a little lower than the angels, and in the process, so to speak, he scoops up mankind and becomes the ideal man for us so that man could be restored to the place of glory and prominence that were once his at the, at the time of creation, going back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. When you look at Hebrews 1 and 2, the exhortation tends to be individual especially as you look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and it talking about how we should pay more careful attention to what we have heard. When we come to chapter 3 and chapter 4, we move to a more corporate uh, responsibility and a more corporate perspective on this whole matter of our relationship and drawing near to the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, chapters 3 and 4 are an expanded exhortation. Now we are into application. It is as though the author has taken chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where he gave us that, uh, that initial exhortation to pay careful attention to the word, and now he has blown it out, so to speak. So he is going to, to play that out in two chapters of uh, exhortation to us. Well, let me talk about where the lesson is going this morning. Uh, first of all, we're going to talk about these events that took place in the wilderness uh, with Israel uh, that are the backdrop to Psalm 95. And then we're going to talk about the message of Psalm 95 and how the author uses uh, those events in his, in his message and then how 
the message in, in Hebrews picks up that same theme and plays it out and the application that that will be to each of us. So I, I have to admit, I went through and, and really did some slicing and dicing this morning in my notes so I, we could hopefully get through the rest of this chapter because it really does need to be looked at in total. But we do want to go to Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. And, and remember now, Exodus chapter 14 is, is where the Israelites have have come through the Red Sea. The bodies of the Egyptian uh, 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 soldiers are washing up on shore. Exodus chapter 15, uh, the first part of that is about the praise and the song of praise that the Israelites are singing, which is not only looking back in terms of what God has done, but looking forward to the way in which God is going to strike fear into the hearts of those in Canaan, and they are assured of entering into that land. But it doesn't take very long before things start going south. In that same chapter, in Exodus chapter 15, the waters of Marah are bitter, and the Israelites are immediately complaining. You almost, I almost get the feeling that the bodies are still washing up on the shore as this complaint is happening. That's not quite true. But, but how, how close in time is the passing through the Red Sea and all of that to the incident at Marah, and yet somehow they've forgotten? Or to put it in different terms, if God has taken care of the Red Sea, I don't think that a drinking fountain in the wilderness is going to be a huge dilemma for him, but Israel doesn't seem to see it that way. And then you have uh, in chapter 16, the wilderness of sin. And remember the Israelites say it would have been better for us to stay in Egypt. And now the issue is the diet. They don't like the menu. I remember when I was in prison, I was teaching there in prison, and and uh, and, and we... We, we had food for lunch that Jeanette would tell me when I came home for dinner, don't tell me what you had. And guys would complain about the way their steaks were cooked. Now, that's just to say that we're, when it comes to food, we're all pretty cranky people, and, and the uh, Israelites are already bellyaching, so to speak, about their diet, and God gives them bread and meat, bread from heaven, manna, and meat in abundance, uh, and uh, that takes place in chapter 16. At Rephidim, in chapter 17, Israel comes to a place where there is no water, and their accusation is, you brought us out here to kill us. And they're, they're once again complaining against uh, Moses, and they're complaining against God, and this is where God says to Moses, you strike the rock. And water will come forth from it. And you remember Moses did that. He struck the rock with his staff, the one that he stretched out over the Red Sea. He struck the rock. The water came forth. And that place was called Massah and Meribah, meaning test and quarrel. And, of course, those names will occur for us in Psalm 95. Now, let's look at Numbers chapter 14. Now we're looking at the incident that pertains to Kadesh Barnea and Israel's opportunity to enter into the land. The spies are sent out, as you remember, in chapter 13, and two reports are given. Uh, One by Joshua and Caleb, yes, it is the land of milk and honey. All of the things that God said about it are true, and we can take it. Let's go do it. 
The other ten uh, had to admit that all of those things were true except the we can take it part, part, and they were thinking only in terms of the giants. The giants were there, and there was no way, humanly, they felt, that they could ever possess the land, and so they voted, so to speak, against it. You remember there was a revolt against Moses, and they actually threatened to stone him and to select somebody else so they can go back to that wonderful place called Egypt. God is angry with the uh, Israelites, and he says, not for the first time, but he says to Moses, I'm going to wipe all this people out, and I'm going to start and make a whole new nation out of you. And just as he did in Exodus chapter 32, Uh, uh, and 33, Moses petitioned with God. He interceded with God that God would be faithful and just and merciful, as we were talking about this morning. He would be merciful to this people. And I had to change. Your notes will look different from the PowerPoint. Uh, But I had to add this point. I don't know why I had overlooked it. And that is in chapter uh, 14, verse 20, God says... I have pardoned them according to your word. Do not miss that. Moses pleads with God to forgive them of their sin, and he does. He is, God is going to say then in verses 21 through 35, these people are going to get what they asked for. They said, oh, would that we died in the wilderness. God says, gotcha on that one. And I'm going to give you one year for every day that you were in the land scoping it out. Forty years you're going to wander in this wilderness and you are going to die. But my point is this. While they are going to die and they are not going to enter the land, the verse right before it says, God pardoned their sins. Now, I'm going to say this several times today, but if we equate not entering the land with not getting to heaven, then you got to say they're not getting to heaven, but their sins have been forgiven. So we have to be very, very careful on this matter of what it means not to enter into rest, and we'll talk about that more in a little bit. All right, Numbers chapter 20. This is now basically at the end of the 40 years. Remember now when Psalm 95 is talking about uh, and, and picking up on, on these events, it says, for 40 years, I, I, I put up with, with these rebel people. I, I was looking as I was reading through these texts again. God says multiple times, how long must I put up with this disobedience? He asks that at the beginning of the 40 years. He asks at the end, and the answer is 40 years. <laughs> That's what you're you're going to, these guys, you got to, my uncle used to say this. His mother always had something good to say about somebody. And he said, she even had something good to say about the devil. If you asked him, she'd say, well, at least he's persistent. And, 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 and in this, you would say, they're consistent. Forty years of it, they're doing the same thing time after time after time. But here we are in Numbers chapter 20. And you have uh, in chapter 15, the backdrop to this, There now the laws are being applied. A man gathers firewood on the Sabbath. Uh, they inquire about that, and he is stoned. God says to them then in verses 37 through 41, be careful about your heart and your eyes. Chapter 16, the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. You remember how all that takes place? They're swallowed up by the ground. And rather than the Israelites being filled with awe and fear, 
they now take it out on Moses and Aaron. And they, and they start this revolt, and the result is that there is a plague coming from God that kills 14,700 in uh, chapter 16, verses 41 through 50. But then we come to uh, chapter 20. There's no water, and the people grumble. Well, this is the same song, uh, third, fourth, fifth verse, is it not? They are grumbling about it. And here God tells Moses not to strike the rock, but to speak to the rock, and the rock will gush forth. And you remember that's where Moses lost his cool, and he says, Here now, you rebels, and he whacks on the rock. And and uh, the thing I want to point out to you is this. When you look at verses 12 and 13, the emphasis here is not on the Israelites not going into the land. That's already been settled back in chapter 14. The emphasis here is on Moses and Aaron not entering the land. And here's the thing I want to point out. The reason they don't enter is because of unbelief and disobedience. Now, that's the same reason that's given for the nation Israel. That's all I'm trying to say. So what, if you want to say unbelief and disobedience keeps you from getting into heaven, then poor old Moses isn't going to be there either. But I don't know what in the world he's doing at the transfiguration, if that's true. And so it, it, just, just take note of that. And I, I'll say it once, and I'll probably say it a couple more times. But one of the things that you have to take very careful, pay very careful attention to in, in, in this text, in chapter 3 and 4, is you have to understand what rest he is talking about. There's not just one kind of rest, and so that's part of the dilemma. At this point, we're talking about the rest of entering into the land. Now let's take a look at Psalm 95. And it falls, as you know, into two neat little sections. The first section is verse, uh, are verses 1 through 7a, let's call it. And the second section is verse 7b through 11. What's interesting to me is... When the author quotes this psalm, he quotes only the second half. He quotes verse 7b through 11. And in the text, it is in Hebrews chapter 3, 7b through 11. That's just coincidental, but it's kind of, it's kind of cute to, to see. But he quotes literally all of the second half of the psalm. But look at the first half with me for a moment. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout out praises to our protector who delivers us. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let's shout out to him in celebration for the Lord is a great God, a great king who is superior to all gods. That is a theme that's sort of similar to Hebrews chapter 1, is it not? only as applied to our Lord Jesus Christ. The depths of the earth are, his, are, are in his hand, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. Creation theme goes back again to chapter 1 of Hebrews. Uh, verse 6, Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Creator. For he is our God, we are the people of his pasture, the sheep that he owns. So here is a call to worship, a call to assemble and to worship God for who he is. But none of that is quoted in Psalm 95. Instead, he starts on the second half at verse 7b, as you see in the next frame. Today, if you would obey him, he says, do not be stubborn like they were at Meribah, like they were that day at Massah in the wilderness. 
where your ancestors challenged my authority and and tried my patience even though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I was continually disgusted with that generation. And I said, these people desire to go astray. They do not obey my commands. So I made a vow in my anger. They will never enter into the resting place I had set aside for them. So now you have the warning. That's the part that the writer to the Hebrews is is bringing. And notice, it is a call to listen. It is a call to assemble together, which is a theme of Hebrews uh, in chapter 3 and in chapter 10, for example. It is a call to gather together to remember what God has done and to proclaim his greatness and worship him. Now, let's make some observations about Psalm 95 without doing a full exposition of that psalm. You notice we've already distinguished the first half and the second half, the call to worship and the exhortation and warnings. But when you see then in in verses 7b through 11, these verses are the only verses cited by the author, and they they are cited in total. That's very interesting to me. And not only are they going to be quoted here in chapters 3 and 4, but the author is going to go back and he's going to pick up certain phrases of that and he's going to repeat them again and again. So this is a a rather interesting way of, of citing the text. It is an exhortation based upon the failures of the nation Israel in the wilderness in Israel for a period of 40 years. So... You know, if you're thinking about the warnings that come about in Hebrews as though somehow, and this is, I I grant you, this is sort of an Arminian theology, but, you know, as though you're walking along and you do something wrong and then you're lost and then you got to get saved again and you walk along a little further and you get lost and get saved again. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about 40 years of consistent rebellion. Not a stumble here or there, but, but 40 years in which the Lord is angry. Notice, too, it is the entire generation with which he is displeased. Not individuals, a few here and there, one or two. The entire generation fails over a 40-year period of time. And their failure is to err in their heart. They don't know God's ways. Remember, Moses says, show me your ways. They really didn't know God. And they rebelled against him. Next frame, in the next frame, you'll pick up some more. The correction is, listen to his words. Don't harden your heart, right? And failing to enter into the rest is failure to enter into the land. In, in this, so far, where we are in Hebrews and coming out of Psalm 95, the failure is the failure to enter into the land. Because of their rebellion, because of their unbelief, God forgave their sins, but he says this generation will not enter into the land. And I already said this, but the consequences for unbelief and disobedience not only apply to all that generation of Israelites, they apply to Moses and Aaron as well from Numbers chapter 20. And here's the part I like. When you look at this, The psalmist in Psalm 95 is doing exactly, exactly what the writer to the Hebrews is doing as well and what he exhorts us to do also. I mean, think about it. 
Here's the psalmist looking back on Israel's history, seeing a pattern of behavior and the consequences for that after 40 years of rebellion, seeing the consequences for that. The psalmist picks up on that and says, there is a lesson for us, Israelites, in his day. There is a lesson for us in the midst of a call to worship. Come, let us gather, let us, let us worship and bow down. If we don't do so, there is the danger of this hardness of heart where we don't listen to what God is saying. We do drift and consequences come. So what you see is the lesson from the Old Testament is the lesson that the writer to, to uh, the, 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 uh, the psalmist writes in, in Psalm 95. And when the writer to the Hebrews picks up and quotes that, he is not misusing or abusing that text, as, as some would be inclined to say. Well, he's sort of reshaping the text to say what he wants. He's saying exactly what the psalmist is saying. Only the difference is that just as the psalmist is saying, here was this experience back here, we ought to learn this lesson here. Now the writer to the Hebrews is saying, and as we look back to Psalm 95 and the experience in the wilderness, we need to apply that to us today. And, and you know that one of the big words in this, in this text is today. It applies today to us in terms of what we're doing. So the writer... Of, of Hebrews is perfectly in sync with the message that is there in Psalm 95 as well as that which we find in the Pentateuch. Okay. What time is it? Wow. Okay. We're making, we're going to be all right. Verses 12 and 13. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has an evil, unbelieving heart that forsakes the living God, but exhort one another each day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened, become hardened by sin's deception. Now, the thing that I want to point out is notice the corporate dimensions to this. He is not speaking to just this individual and that individual here and there within the congregation. He is speaking to the congregation as a whole. Why? Because we are a body and we have corporate responsibility. We have a responsibility within the body to detect, to discern and detect when things are going wrong. And even before that point, to be aware of the fact that they can and they will go wrong. And, and so it's a, it's a corporate uh, responsibility. We are, as I say, our brother's keeper. The needy, those who are going to drift, those who are going to be uh, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin are probably those least likely to recognize where they are. And so it is the body of Christ that surrounds itself and exhorts itself to remain faithful to God and to proclaim His wonders. So we're encouraged and obliged to exhort one another so that none of us, no one among us, is hardened by sin's deception. Well, I wish I had time to really play out that. But, you know, one of the things that I have observed in a, in a number of years of ministry is the way in which sin gives one a, a, a sort of foggy view of theology, and then that leads to a hardness of heart. 
I have seen it over and over again. When somebody makes a, a willful choice, we, for instance, this morning, uh, Brian was talking to us about uh, Solomon. I mean, is there anybody, is there anybody in the world who can look at the text and say, my goodness, man, I mean, you know, how many wives and whatever, what does the Scripture say? But what happens is you make a choice. I would say, let's call it wife one. I mean, there's a big, long list of them. I, I, can you imagine they have to have a reunion someplace for all the wives and kids and they wear name tags because he probably forgets when he married this particular one. But at some point, Solomon makes the choice to marry a foreign wife knowing it is wrong. And he says to himself, as many people have said over the years, well, God wants me to be happy, you know, all the, all the kinds of things. And having made that decision, it's almost like you have some anesthesia that comes along and sort of numbs you to the reality of truth. And all of a sudden, truth becomes less clear. I've heard it over and over again. People will say, I know what I am doing is wrong and I must stop. And, and oftentimes they do not. And as they persist, there is a hardening of heart that comes about with sin. And pretty soon the logic is, I know that you think the Bible says this is wrong. But there are other people who, who have a different view of that. And pretty soon, you know what? I, and I've seen it all the way to this end. I've seen it to the end where somebody later in their, in their, in their life and experience says, I never believed any of that stuff anyway. That's, that's the terrible deceitfulness of sin that leads to a hardened heart where it isn't even sensitive or listening to the truth. And it is the thing that the writer to the Hebrews is saying, it is, it is a possibility, not for everybody, that, not, and I'll show you a little graphic on that in a minute, not for everybody, but there is the possibility that somebody sitting here this morning may come to the point where they actually get so hardened that they just say, I don't believe any of it. Okay. Look at the, uh, in the next frame, forsaking or departing from the living God. And that is the word uh, basically from which we get apostasy. How do we explain apostasy in this context? I loved S. Lewis Johnson's explanation of this uh, back at Believer's Chapel a number of years ago. He said, Apostasy is not the departure from a certain set of standards, of behavioral standards. Apostasy is the departure from Jesus Christ by faith, a departure of faith from Jesus Christ to where you renounce him as Savior. So it's, it's a matter of unbelief, Unbelief in the Lord Jesus. Man, I'll tell you, if you look at some of these characters in the Bible and you were just looking from a conduct standpoint, like Solomon, like David when he's killing Uriah and so on, you're saying, whoa, whoa, this is scary. Jacob, uh, Abraham passing his wife off as a sister. You look at that from the standpoint of conduct and, and, and you're going to have trouble. Because believers and unbelievers are going to look a lot alike at bad points in believers' lives. But a believer always maintains his trust in Jesus Christ. An apostate forsakes that trust. And so uh, take a look at the chart that, that I've done. Please forgive me. I can't draw stick figures 
And when I get into PowerPoint, it, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm running far beyond my capacity. But let me just try this on you for size and see what it looks like. The, the top uh, line that I've shown, uh, the blue line, is the believer in their life. And here's the way I understand the, the, not only Hebrews, but other passages of Scripture applying to this. I'm actually taking that downward line of exhortation, and I would have if I could have figured out how to get two in there, how to put admonition too. Admonition is the word for warning, okay? It means look out for the dangers ahead. It actually comes before sin. And that's what we ought to be doing as we gather together as fellow believers. We ought to be saying to one another, there are dangers down this road, and we don't even want to start there. Exhortation or admonition before the point of unbelief. But when we reach the point of unbelief, it, it, it then becomes sin. And that is the point, from a biblical point of view, that is the point at which one brings rebuke or correction. Matthew chapter 18, other texts, where now the believer comes alongside the fellow believer who is in sin, who has been overtaken by a, a sin or a fault, and, and they say, this is wrong. Now, you know that in some cases that's going to result in repentance and restoration, and that's glorious. In other instances, that's not going to lead to it, and that's where you get to what I call removal. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Here is a man who is living with his father's wife. Paul says, I've already removed that man, so to speak, from fellowship, and that's what you are to do. Now, this is a man who professes to know Christ, and Paul says that you hand this one over to Satan so that their flesh may be destroyed and that their spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So here's the way I understand it. When a believer persists on the route of sin, you go through these processes, and that little thin line I've got at the end, that's the glass wall that you never pass beyond. You never pass beyond into eternal judgment. But there is a stage at which God may well remove you. There is a sin, John says, there is a sin that is unto death. God may pull you out of the game because you have persisted in your sin and you have not repented of it. 1 Corinthians 11, for this reason some of you are sick and some sleep. There is a termination point, but it's not hell. That's my point. It's not hell for the believer, but there is a termination point where God says, I've had enough. And it looks to me in some ways like that parallels Israel not entering into the land. They're still forgiven, but they will not enter. Okay. So you move from uh, underneath the line, you move from unbelief to sin to what we would call a hardened heart. And that is the most dangerous place in the world to be because you're insensitive to the corrective work of God through his people, through his word, uh, and so on. All right, down to the bottom. There is what I would call the apostate. That's red, is it not, for you? And, and, uh, in that instance, what you have is, is somebody who has apparent belief. They're a part, as Hebrews would seem to say, they're a part of the community of the people of God. There is apparent belief, but there reaches some point, some crisis point in their life where for whatever reason they say, I am out of here. That is not for me. 
Now, you could look at passages like John chapter 6 where it talks about many of his disciples were following him and Jesus says, now, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood or you have no part of me. And they say, man, we're out of here. I'm not sure whether you want to call them apostates or whatever, but at that point, they, they hadn't believed, I don't think, in the full sense. They didn't know what it was the gospel was about. When they found out what it was about, they bailed. So there is the difference, and I would say, <laughs> if I had room for one more line, I'd just have a straight line for the old, good old-fashioned, red-blooded American uh, or any other kind of heathen. Just a straight, uninterrupted line where like Ephesians chapter 2, uh, 1 and following, they're under Satan's dominion and control and they're just heading down their sinful path and they're on the freeway to hell. And they don't even have a point where there was at least some identification with belief or with believers. Now, I'm not sure, I know it's not a beautiful piece of art. I'm not even sure it's a perfect piece of theology. But it seems to me that what's happening is from Romans chapter 6 and other places in the Scripture, it seems to me that when the Christian gets on the path of sin, all right, when they decide that they are going to be disobedient to God, they are on the freeway to hell. They are on the road, as it were, to eternal destruction. Now, I said there's a barrier. God's not going to let them pass that. But it seems to me that the warnings of Scripture are saying to somebody, look at where that path leads. And so you don't you want to come across strongly? Don't you want to say, look at the devastating consequences of where this path goes? Now, if you don't know whether this person's a believer or an apostate, then again, you have to hedge with, this is the path that leads to death. Repent and, and, and trust in Jesus. All right. Verses 14 and 15. Uh, we have become partners with Christ if in fact we hold our initial confidence firm until the end. As it says, Oh, that today, I would underscore that in my mind, Oh, that today you would listen as he speaks. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Saving faith is evident in the perseverance of the believer. That's the way it looks to me. Secondly, perseverance occurs one day at a time. That's what he's saying today about. Every day is today, and you have to ask the question, where am I? Am I listening to his voice today? The way in which you endure is a day at a time, and it is promoted by hearing and heeding God's word. Verses 16 through 18. Now, this is a series of three questions that he is asking to drive home the lesson that comes out of the wilderness wanderings of the Hebrews. He says, those who rebelled are those who saw it all and heard it all. Who was it that didn't enter the land? They were the people who were there when the ten plagues were brought upon Egypt. They were the people who saw the Egyptian soldiers coming from behind when Moses parts the Red Sea and they pass through. These are the people who got the manna day after day, who every time they needed water, God provided it for them. These are the people who for 40 years saw God's hand at work day after day after day. 
They saw these things. By the way, it parallels, does it not, Hebrews chapter 2, where it talks about the word which has been committed to these men, and these men have committed it to us, and the word and their, the, the authority of those apostles has been confirmed by, by miracles and, and wonders that God has done to accredit that word. These things, these people saw all the time. They saw it from the beginning, yet they rebelled for 40 years, and they were disobedient, which is why they did not enter the land. So in verse 19, he concludes, So we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. Unbelief is the root of sin. I think you can say it is the root of all sin. When you look back at the fall of man in the garden, disobedience is the result, but what is the cause? What is it that Satan is able to do that brings Adam and Eve to the point where they are willing to disobey? And the answer is, certainly for Eve, it was not believing in God. It was not believing his word. Doth God really say? It's It's a doubt of his word, and it's a doubt of his character. It's really not trusting God. And once you reach the point where you say, I'm not sure God can be trusted, then believe me, that is the point at which you will say, I am not sure he ought to be obeyed. We think of that song that some of us used to sing, if we don't sing it very much anymore, trust and obey. you got to trust first. And obedience flows out of that. Unbelief is that from which disobedience and then hardness of heart flows. Unbelief is the root of apostasy, and it's why people do not enter into God's rest. So I'm going to recap a little bit. We already said it, but the author of, of, of Hebrews, when he gives this exhortation, he is doing precisely what the author of Psalm 95 is. Incidentally, you'll notice that it'll say that where David says, and Psalm 95 isn't attributed to David, and it may well be that the author is simply saying, that, that part of David, or he may be just making a reference to the Psalms. Maybe it is David, but that's not really the, the main point. The author of Hebrews is absolutely walking in sync with the writer of Psalm 95. He's not manipulating his message. He is simply carrying it over to another generation of people. Well, I'm jumping down to point C, but failure to enter into God's rest is not yet fully uh, defined. What we're going to see in the next chapter is that there are various kinds of rest. The first kind of rest, which is a picture of heaven, is the rest which God had in in creation. In Genesis chapter 2, the first three verses, where God finishes his creation and he rests. That is the ideal rest. Then you have the rest that the first generation didn't enter. You have the rest that the second generation did enter under Joshua, but they didn't really enter into rest. There is the rest that the psalmist is talking about. is still available in Psalm 95 for today. And there is the rest, I believe, that is ultimately that eternal rest. So my point is simply this. You have to decide which rest the writer is talking about when you look at any particular part of this text or you're liable to find yourself in a little bit of trouble. Okay, now let me just make a few words of of application. We are our brother's keeper. If this 
If this book of Hebrews says anything to us, it says we are our brother's keeper. That is perfectly consistent with what we see in Psalm 95. Here is the psalmist exhorting his brothers and sisters to gather together for worship and to remember who God is and praise him for it with the warning that the failure to do so leads to a difficulty of hearing and a disobedience that may result in not entering into the rest that is available for us. It seems to me that at best, the church today, the evangelical church, is reactive. And and I'm going to tell you, there's not even a lot of good examples of reactive response to sin but but when when you look at that at that graphic I did where you're talking about the point of admonition which comes before the sin and rebuke that comes at the point of sin, when sin is evident in the church today, it's a question mark as to whether or not that church will choose to see it and choose to deal with it in a biblical way. Church discipline is not a popular thing, and lawsuits haven't made it any more popular. But it is something we need to do. What I'm saying to you is, yes, we need to keep doing that, but we need to start moving into prevention. We need to be proactive. And that's what Psalm 95 is about. That's what the writer of the Hebrews is about. And saying, rather than wait until a brother or sister stumbles and falls, let's be working to build up one another in our faith so that we never get that far. That, as I understand it, is, is the gist of what he would have. And that is why the way we gather is so important. How many places do you know of where you can gather as a body of people and where the body can exhort itself? It's easy. It's easy to find a church. Not that easy anymore, but it's, it's, it's at least easier than, than some things. It's, it, it's easy to find a church where there's preaching from the pulpit and there's a lot of exhortation coming down this way but where is it that the church gathers in a Psalm 95 sort of way, in a New Testament sort of way, where people gather so that they may fall down before God in worship. They may exhort one another to, to be strong in their faith and to walk consistently with Him. That's the thing that we strive to do every Sunday. It's for the body to gather together and, and encourage and admonish and and worship together with one another to prevent the kinds of things which keep us from entering into the rest which God has for us. Now, it may be that you're here this morning and you've never even entered into the rest at all in the sense of trusting in the Lord Jesus. The beginning point is acknowledging your desperate need, like all of ours, for forgiveness of sins, for the fact that we are under divine condemnation because of our sins and that the Lord Jesus Christ took on human flesh. That's Hebrews chapter 2. He took on human flesh so that He could be the sacrifice for our sins, so that in trusting in Him, we not only have the forgiveness of sins, we have the restoration of man to the glory for which He was created. If you've never trusted in Him, then do so today. Father, thank You for these words. Thank you for Psalm 95. Thank you for the lessons that we are to learn. Help us to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, so that there will not be within us one with an evil, unbelieving heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.